This is uh, our 51st and final sermon in the series through the book of Numbers. And uh, what I have on the board behind me tonight is uh, hopefully the help of just looking at two big sections that uh, we need to keep in mind before we end the book. Uh, The book of Numbers has a couple different literary frames. And we're just reminded that when these books are written and the biblical authors uh, have uh, left these uh, inspired writings preserved for the people of God, it's not haphazardly put together. Uh, Chapters 1 through 26 are a section. Chapters 27 through 36 are a section. These are the two biggest divisions in the book of Numbers. Uh, There are a series of smaller subdivisions. But here's what we want to notice in the first big frame. Uh, Numbers 1 to 26 really helps us understand why the book is called Numbers. There are a number of uh, countings and sums that are given, especially in the opening and closing chapters. Chapter 1 and chapter 26 are chapters of counting. And what they're counting are the fighting men who will be engaged in the conquest in the promised land. Now, why are there two counts? Well, we have to remind ourselves that after chapter 1, this generation that was counted would not end up being the generation that would go into the promised land, would it? Because these chapters, chapters 1 to 26, tell us, narrate for us, the rebellion of the Exodus generation. These chapters, uh, the first 10, take place at Mount Sinai as uh, everything is put in order and instructions about who's to leave the camp and what order and what tribes are to arrange around the tabernacle on which side. All this very peculiar um, attention. And we're told that uh, Israel is ready to rebel and they receive these words from Moses as Yahweh gave them to him. And uh, we feel optimistic in the first 10 chapters of Numbers. Everything seems to be going well. And then when they leave in the latter part of Numbers 10, um, they begin to complain and murmur against the Lord. Chapter chapter 10 ends like this. Chapter 11, chapter 12. You you start to get a series of, uh, of chapters that are the momentum in the wrong direction. And I don't mean geographically. The spiritual state of the people becomes a paramount concern, especially when you get to Numbers 13 and 14. In Numbers 13 and 14, the Israelites are so ready to go back to the promised land, they receive the majority negative report from the spies who had gone to Canaan. And they conclude there is no way we can go in this land and survive it. We are going to die. Our children are going to die. Our wives will be prey for the land. We've got to go back. Let's select a new leader. So in these sections of, or in this section of chapters, Numbers 13 and 14 tell us the rebellion of the wilderness generation. And why it becomes known as the wilderness generation. A 40-year period of wandering was imposed upon them. And for 40 years, uh, they would be a people who would uh, die out as a new generation of Israel came up. I've described one of the functions of the book of Numbers as to narrate the death and resurrection of Israel. That's one of the ways you can think about this storyline in these 36 chapters. That Israel goes into the wilderness and undergoes a kind of death and rebirth. Now Israel, um, right after this uh, rebellious generation, there are a series of instructions from chapters 15 forward that are intermixed with narratives. Uh, But um, you arrive in Numbers 21 at the plains of Moab, where in Moab, the Israelites are going to remain from Numbers 21 all the way to the end of the book. 
and all the way through the book of Deuteronomy, all at one location, right by the Jordan River, looking opposite uh, to Jericho on the other side. I mean, they're, just, they're so close. And um, after Numbers 21, Balaam has this very uh, um, strange turn of events. He's not an Israelite, but he's a prophet. Uh, an international seer uh, is uh, on his resume. And in Numbers 22, 23, and 24, it comes to pass that through the, this uh, uh, travel of Balaam to the plains of Moab, that God's blessing upon the people is affirmed. And, um, and, but Balaam, Balaam has other plans. We find out from a later part of Numbers why chapter 25 goes the way it does. In chapter 25, um, Balaam uh, facilitates and encourages, advises the seduction of Israelites. And that through some of these um, foreign women in the land, they can seduce them into immorality and idolatry. And so judgment takes place. And Numbers 25 is the largest judgment of the Israelites that's recorded in the Torah, the first five books of Moses. It's on a grand scale of over 20,000 Israelites who perish. And then Numbers 26. So Numbers 26 caps off this first big section of Numbers because now we're going to count the new generation from 20 years old and upward who are now going to go into the land and fight. And that uh, opening and closing, the chapters of that big section, are uh, a census that's taken of the fighting men of Israel. And so Numbers 1 to 26 really do belong together because they've now arrived at Moab and the new count has been given. Numbers 27 to 36, which we conclude tonight, Numbers 27 to 36 is about future life in the land. In Numbers 27, we open with this discussion about how the daughters of Zelophehad are going to inherit anything because their father has died and they're not married and they long for inheritance in the land. And so that's addressed. But also in Numbers 27, the successor of Moses. The successor of Moses is appointed and God declares it will be Joshua, the son of Nun. And then in Numbers 28 and 29, the various calendar uh, year of Israel's feasts is uh, described and the uh, sacrifices that are to be offered. Uh, These chapters are all about future life in the land. Included in these chapters are discussions with such detail about the borders of Israel. Like when we go into the land, how far do the boundaries go? And even in these chapters, we find that um, Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh will end up living outside the promised land. And uh, fighting the battle for the people alongside them, but later to return and live outside the land east of the Jordan River. These chapters are about future life in the land. Where are people going to live? What's the inheritance going to be like? And we left off last week with chapter 35. That chapter 35 envisions 48 cities that are going to be cities for the Levites. And six of those cities, three in the promised land and three outside the promised land, will be special cities of refuge if you have been rightly accused of uh, taking someone's life. It's going to be determined your guilt or innocence, whether it was manslaughter or homicide. And so these cities of refuge play into that. But it still underscores the common denominator in these chapters, future life in the land. In the last chapter of the book... Attention is once again given to that theme, but there's a return to an earlier family. The family, the daughters of Zelophehad, are brought up again. 
you could consider chapter 36 a way of closing the book like chapter 27 opened this section. So the opening of this section and the closing of this section deal with the daughters of Zelophehad. And just as the first big section of Numbers opened and ended with a census of the fighting men of Israel. This book, like all the books of Scripture, have a careful literary coherence and design for it. And it's good to observe in a big picture, why is this section the way that it is? Chapter 27 and chapter 36 are about this group of five daughters, the daughters of Zelophehad. And in order to understand what's going on in this chapter, we have to remind ourselves of a couple things. First of all, the daughters of Zelophehad are without their father. Um, It was uh, not the norm in the ancient world that the daughters in the family would receive an inheritance. But here, the father has only had daughters. And so the second thing to consider here is not just that the father has died, leaving these daughters in this precarious state. They, by faith, believe that this promised land is as good as done for the Israelites, and they want to be included in the inheritance. They essentially say in Numbers 27, give to us a possession. And, and I don't take that to mean some sort of uh, you know, selfish entitlement or any sort of angle like that. I think instead John Calvin and others are right who said that the request of Zelophehad's daughters showed faith in the divine promises. That's what these daughters are like. And the five of them are named. There are uh, very few uh, times where someone's name as a female character is repeated over and over again. And yet the daughters of Zelophehad are mentioned in the genealogies given in Numbers 26 of one of the families. And then in Numbers 27 they're mentioned. And then in Numbers 36 they're mentioned. And then in Joshua 17 they're mentioned. Four times, not only are these daughters referred to, they're all mentioned by name in each of those cases. Which means... This is an important story. That kind of repetition is very intriguing because you might blink and miss it in one section, but if you keep reading the Bible, you're going to come across these names again. Four times, no less. Um, So, we've reminded ourselves of a few facts from Numbers 27. Why are we returning to the story? Well, let's look at their predicament. The predicament is in verses 1 to 4. The predicament will help us realize why we are ending with this story of these daughters. The heads of the father's houses of the clan of the people of Gilead, the son of Machir, son of Manasseh, from the clans of the people of Joseph, came near and spoke before Moses and before the chiefs, the heads of the father's houses of the people of Israel. What that verse means, and the short of it is, that there is a group of leaders from Manasseh's tribe that are wanting to speak to the leaders among Israel, Moses especially, they have something they want to unpack here. A predicament, let's call it. The reason that this little genealogy is mentioned, Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, is because earlier in Numbers 27, we learned that the daughters of Zelophehad descend from Manasseh. So it's this family, it's the people from this tribe. We once again come to the uh, names in descent here, and they want a hearing with Moses. And in verse 2 they said, The Lord commanded my Lord, so there Yahweh commanded Moses, they use Lord there in a little L kind of way, my Lord Moses, to give the land for inheritance by lot to the people of Israel. And my Lord was commanded by the Lord to give the inheritance of Zelophehad, our brother, to his daughters. 
That's all summary, isn't it? They're simply saying in verse 2 what's been earlier revealed. Where do we go for that? Well, that's Numbers 27, right? The opening chapter of that last big section of Numbers. Numbers 27, verses 1 to 11, is basically summarized here in verse 2. The inheritance by lot that would be given to the people of Israel, part of that involved a command of the Lord to give the inheritance to Zelophehad's daughters. Here's the thing, though. Here's the but. You knew one was coming. Here's their predicament. Verse 3. But if they're married to any of the sons of the other tribes of the people of Israel, then their inheritance will be taken from the inheritance of our fathers and added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry, so it will be taken away from the lot of our inheritance. What do they just observe? Well, let's say that the daughters of Zelophehad intermarry with someone from Ephraim. They say, well, I really fancy this guy from Ephraim. And so, so they, they want to they wanna marry that person. Well, what's going to happen to the inheritance? Well, the complication is this, that that inheritance will now be a part of that Ephraimite family that the daughter of Zelophehad is marrying into. And this isn't only a potential situation for one of the daughters. There are five daughters of Zelophehad. So this could get quite tricky. And they don't want a situation where the allotments are diluted. Where the people go into the land and they receive these various places of inheritance, but then over time, all of that gets changed and compromised. So they say, well, here's our predicament then. You said that the daughters of Zelophehad get an inheritance. Thumbs up on that. Two thumbs up, in fact. That's great. That's what they wanted. Moses has granted that. But here's what we realize. What if they intermarry from someone of another tribe? I don't mean that that's sinful, intermarriage in that way. I mean they marry someone who's not from Manasseh. So in verse 4... They continue the predicament and they say not even the celebration of Jubilee will rectify the situation that we're envisioning. The complication here. You see, Jubilee is a practice in Leviticus 25 that would occur after every 49 years. The 50th year would be a year of Jubilee and lands that had been sold would be returned to their original owners. But here's the problem. Because you might think, wait a second, maybe the year of Jubilee, if the daughters of Zelophehad lose this land to another tribe, it'll all be set back. Ah, well, it says, when the Jubilee of the people of Israel comes, then their inheritance will be added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry, and their inheritance will be taken from the inheritance of the tribe of our fathers. Jubilee doesn't solve this, because the Jubilee only resets property that is bought and sold, not property that's inherited. So this means that even the Jubilee celebration will not address this predicament. What needs to happen is Moses issue some sort of practical guidance, uh, a word of command for how to navigate this. So the predicament is in verses 1 to 4. Here is the updated instructions in verses 5 to 9. The updated instructions, we could call them. Moses commanded the people of Israel, according to the word of the Lord, saying, The tribe of the people of Joseph is right. Now, why did he call them the people of Joseph? Aren't they the people of Manasseh? We have to remember descent, okay? So Manasseh is the son of Joseph, which means that calling them the people of Joseph is a shorthand way of referring to the two tribes that came from Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh. So he's essentially saying these people who've come with their predicament, they're right. Like we can't dismiss this as like you guys are wor- you're worried about this for no reason. Oh, no, no, they've got, they've got good reason. 
So this is a justified concern. The tribe of the people of Joseph is right. This is what the Lord commands concerning the daughters of Zelophehad. Let them marry whom they think best. Only they shall marry within the clan of the tribe of their father. Which, of course, ultimately the tribe of their father would be Manasseh. Here's the updated instructions then. You daughters of Zelophehad who are from Manasseh, marry a man from Manasseh. That's how we'll solve this. <laughs> That's how we'll solve this. So you don't have to worry about this inheritance being taken from your tribe and into the tribe of your husband, who would be a non-Manassite, let's say. So these updated instructions are, marry as you would think best, in a way that preserves the good that you are aiming for. Like, you have to think long-term then. And this is good principle here, because they might say, well, you know, uh, what about this person from Ephraim that we met? Or what about this person from Naphtali? Well, then they're not thinking long-term enough. There's a good sense of of wisdom here by by looking at how Moses is addressing this. He's giving them guidance on how to think about their marriage situation that will achieve the long-term goal and not just short-term thinking. And so he gives them this wisdom as these updated instructions. In verse 7, the inheritance of the people of Israel shall not be transferred from one tribe to another. For every one of the people of Israel shall hold on to the inheritance of the tribe of his father. So that's the goal. That when these allotments allotments are all meted out and administered in the book of Joshua, that it will be um, perpetuated. Now, I think verses 8 and 9 introduce that this situation for the daughters of Zelophehad, the wisdom they're given, could actually apply more broadly, let's say, If anyone else is a daughter in a tribe and finds themselves in a similar situation. So in verse 8, he says, And every daughter who possesses an inheritance in any tribe of the people of Israel shall be wife to one of the clan of the tribe of her father, so that every one of the people of Israel may possess the inheritance of his fathers. Now, that long, that long instruction, that principle, is basically saying, let's say you're in a situation like the daughters of Zelophehad. There are no brothers who are going to receive an inheritance. Since in the ancient world, and according to the Torah, the the son and the oldest son was to receive inheritance and the largest of the shares. Let's say there are no brothers, there are only daughters, and the son and the father is dead. And that means the daughters in another tribe could find themselves in the same situation as Zelophehad's daughters. In verse 8, he says, well, then it goes for you too to follow this same policy. You will have a tribe within the clan of the tribe of your father. And that is so that the people of Israel may possess the inheritance of the fathers. In verse 9, the result of this will be, So no inheritance shall be transferred from one tribe to another. For each of the tribes of the people of Israel shall hold on to its own inheritance. So we're summarizing here, right? Now, that's the, that's the updated instructions. You've got the predicament, verses 1 to 4. The updated instructions, verses 5 to 9. Well, in verse 10, the daughters of Zelophehad did as the Lord commanded Moses. For Malah and Tirzah and Hoglah and Milcah and Noah, the daughters of Zelophehad, were married to sons of their father's brothers. This is a way of speaking about within the larger tribe of Manasseh, the family uh, inheritance was preserved and maintained. Verses 10 through 12 report for us the obedience 
So you have this command, right? Moses says, I have a command from the Lord. According to the command of the Lord, here's what you shall do. And they don't look at this and say, you know, we wondered if you would weigh in, Moses. But, you know, the suggestion you've given, uh, I think we're going to go a different route. No, instead, they understand this to be Moses's guidance, uh, the Lord's guidance through Moses' servant. Oh, well, I'm just going to, our lights just went out in the sanctuary, but... I'm going to keep going. You ready? <laughs> I've preached in the dark before. And what we, have, what we see in verses 10 through 12 is the obedience of the daughters of Zelophehad. The last verse of the chapter is a summary statement. And after the daughter's obedience to uh, Moses' command, the summary in verse 13 is not just for this chapter. The summary statement here is probably for the whole book of Numbers. In chapter 27 of Leviticus, Leviticus ends in its last chapter this way. These are the commandments the Lord commanded Moses for the people of Israel. If you look at the end of Numbers, chapter 36, it sounds similar. These are the commands and the rules the Lord commanded through Moses. This closing statement then is not just the final statement of this chapter. We're wrapping up as a closing statement here the whole of the book. So I think these commandments and rules reach beyond what the daughters of Zelophehad have just been told, right? The daughters of Zelophehad have received instruction. But what does the book of Numbers contain? But a huge amount, section after section, narrative after narrative, law after law, of wisdom from Yahweh to guide His people into the life in front of them. That means these commandments and rules in verse 13 are probably all that encompasses the book of Numbers. Or that the book of Numbers encompasses, I should say. These these laws, these commandments are commanded through Moses. We're reminded here of the mediator role that Moses says. And they're given to the people of Israel, but where are they? In the plains of Moab, east of the Jordan River. We're we're situating them there on a Bible map, right? That's where they are. These commandments are given there. They're by the Jordan River. That's the reference. And where are they? They are at Jericho. Now, this can be easily misunderstood. They're not actually in Jericho geographically. They're at the Jordan at Jericho because Jericho is right on the other side. At Jericho should be understood as a statement of nearness and close proximity. Boy, it's raining now. I can hear it. We're recording this for posterity, and it was a night that rained. (laughs) We're we're hearing it. (laughs) But nonetheless, in verse 13... (laughs) Has it ever rained this hard while I've been preaching in the book of Numbers? I don't know what this means. Is this a sign? At the very very end of the verse, and we'll start closing with this. (laughs) Or maybe I won't. The last verse, the last word of the verse is Jericho. The last word is Jericho. Why does that matter? Because Jericho signifies the installment of the conquest in the book of Joshua. Here they are in the Jordan River with Jericho on the other side. And the book of Numbers ends with this word so that these people who are going to cross the promised land, where will they go? But to Jericho for the Lord to deliver not only this city, but as a down payment of all of the conquest of the land. We're reminded here that the promised land foreshadows a new creation. These Israelites are going to go in a real historical sense to inherit the promised land. But I've wanted us to understand the book of Numbers on more than one level. Not just historically, but spiritually. 
The Israelites are a people of God making a pilgrimage toward land of inheritance, and that foreshadows the life to come. It foreshadows what Hebrews 11 and other places in the New Testament say about those who lived in the Israelite era. Hebrews 11, for example, says in verse 13, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. Well, here are these Israelites in the plains of Moab at the Jordan River, right across from Jericho. These people are going to go in and receive the land. So what does it mean that they all died not having received the things promised? Well, in the context of Hebrews 11, we're talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There are descendants of Abraham who did not receive the inheritance, which means God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not promises limited to the borders and boundaries of Canaan, but rather a part of a larger hope of what is to come. We're told here in Hebrews 11 that these patriarchs, having seen the things promised and greeted them from afar, recognize that they themselves are but strangers and exiles. That means the history of Israel's people are instructive for us by example. They were people redeemed, going through the wilderness years where the Lord sustains them, where they face the perils and snares of temptation, yet are to hold to the promises of God because His faithfulness will guide them to the inheritance. And this language of the New Testament interprets the old this way as a template for the people of God now. That we are those headed to an inheritance, 1 Peter 1.4. It's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Or in Hebrews 9.15, Jesus is a mediator of a new covenant so that those called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. This language of inheritance is rooted in the Old Testament concept of the land. That means when we read the book of Numbers, we should read the book of Numbers as pointing toward, foreshadowing, or we would use the word typifying. It is like a type of the people of God in the new covenant heading toward new creation in the power of the Holy Spirit himself. The book of Numbers is relevant for the Christian life because we have been redeemed from the captivity that ensnared us. We are being sustained and guided by the faithfulness of the Lord and His Spirit, animated by promises that are true and that will be fulfilled at His appointed time. And He will overcome all adversity that would keep us from that place. He has overcome sin. He will raise us from the dead. He will sanctify and glorify us to prepare us for an unshakable and everlasting kingdom. Indeed, it's an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. These Israelites are right at the border of the plains of Moab, looking across the Jordan at Jericho. But you could not say that Jericho was an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance. You see, the promised land was the kind of thing that in Israel's history, they had to exercise dominion in and conquest. And it was also a land that could be lost in God's judgment and exile from that land to Babylon. This was not an unfading undefiled, imperishable inheritance. But it was a type of an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance. The New Testament anchors that in Christ. It encourages the church of Jesus to see things that way. When we read the Old Testament, we're encouraged by the faithfulness of God and all of His great promises. It's as if we ourselves will find our days reaching toward that land where we are coming to those borders that even death itself will not keep us from what God has given. It is an inheritance kept in heaven for you. When we look at the opening and ending of this last big section, 
the daughters of Zelophehad might seem like a surprising way to end the book of Numbers. There's been a lot of warfare and intrigue and all sorts of uh, mess that the book of Numbers has with a lot of drama. And a mixture of laws and instructions as well. Why the daughters of Zelophehad? Because the daughters of Zelophehad trust by faith that God is going to keep all of his promises. And so if you think about it from that angle, that's actually an appropriate way to end the book of Numbers. Here are a group of daughters who look to God's promises and they say, we don't want to be kept from those. We want all God has prepared for his people, that he will bring us into all of his promises. And these instructions are to help them navigate wisely what it will mean to live as the people of God in that place. These 36 chapters are indeed a long journey. Uh, It only covered 12 months of our uh, exposition in uh, corporate worship. But this covers over 40 years of Israel's life. And this is a a massive amount of time. uh, Or no, about 40 years of Israel's life. And so when you look at all of those decades, what we see is not just the failure of the people. That is true. We see their temptations and snares, their unfaithfulness. That is true. But you don't only see that. The book of Numbers narrates for us the faithfulness of God who guides and provides and sustains and who can be altogether trusted. They might be able to conclude like we should when we read uh, these kinds of stories. I might not be able to trust my heart, but I can trust the Lord. I might not be able to depend and count on the circumstances that are around me, but I can count on the Lord. I might not be able to know what's going to happen in the next day or the next year or the next several decades, but I can trust that what God has promised, He will fulfill. And the people in Numbers then, they can instruct us by example, walk by faith in the promises of our unfailing God. Let's pray together.